Good morning. Welcome everyone to our Aliyah day. It's a beautiful day outside, bright and sunny here in the beautiful Saginaw, Texas, just north of Fort Worth in the great and some would say holy state of Texas. Glad that you're with me. We are in a new parasha, uh, parasha Zav, the second parasha of the book of Leviticus, the book of Aikra. And so, we have a very busy week this week. Very busy week with Purim coming up and uh, lots of Torah study going on. It's going to be an amazing, amazing time. I pray and hope that everybody can join us. The uh, Megillah reading on, uh, on Wednesday night is going to be broadcast live across the globe. And yes, the world is round. And so we will be broadcasting it live, and so everybody will be able to join in the fun, even if you cannot be here in persona. So we have our Aliyah today. The first reading of Zav is going to occur on page 569 in your art school, Chumash. It begins in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. So let's read the first Aliyah, shall we? Shall we? Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the elevation offering. It is the elevation offering that stays on the flame of the altar all night until morning. And the fire of the altar shall remain a flame on it. The Kohen shall don his fitted linen tunic, and he shall don linen breeches of his flesh, and he shall separate the ash of what the fire consumed of the elevation offering of the altar. And place it next to the altar. He shall remove his garments and don on the garments. He shall remove the ashes to the outside of a camp to a pure place. The fire on the altar shall remain burning on it. It shall not be extinguished. And the Kohen shall kindle wood upon it every morning. And he shall prepare the elevation offering upon it. And shall cause the fats of the peace offering to go up and smoke upon it. A permanent fire shall remain a flame on the altar. It shall not be extinguished. So just an aside, by the way, if this passage seems familiar, it's because it's what we read during the Corbinote service. But um, a famous refrain or a common refrain of this is that we're not allowed to let the fire go out on the altar, which means what? It means that we have the responsibility of keeping the fire going. We have that responsibility. It's, it's not up to God to keep the fire in our lives going up. It's up to us. And he's given us the tools with which to do that. What are those tools? Torah study, prayer. And uh, one of the principal ways to keep the fire going is to be in community, to be in fellowship with other people uh, at the synagogue that you are, you're constantly around because their spark ignites your spark. And when two Two uh, burning uh, logs get together, it creates a bonfire. So that's one way, one of the ways in which we keep the fire going. So it says, um, this is the law of the meal offering. The sons of Aaron shall bring, up, bring it before Hashem to the front of the altar. He shall separate it from the three fingers full, some of the fine flour of the meal offering and some of its oil and the frankincense that is on the meal offering. And it shall, he shall cause them to go up and smoke on the altar for a sas aroma. It's memorial portion unto Adonai. 
And Aaron and his sons shall eat what is left of it. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the courtyard of the tent of meeting shall they eat it. It shall not be baked leaven. I have presented it as their share from the fire offerings. It is most holy, <clears throat> like the sin offering and like the guilt offering. Slika. <clears throat> Every male of the children of Aaron shall eat it, and an eternal portion for the generations, for the fire offering Adonai, whoever touches them shall become holy. Now, I want to touch back to a uh, couple of things from um, Rabbi Monk before we dive into this particular new parasha. Some things, a couple of things that got left behind uh, from last week that I thought were uh, worth mentioning, needing to be said. So, um, just a quick comment here from Vayikra 4 and chapter 3. This is from the parasha Vayikra. It says, If the anointed Cohen will sin, let me read that again. If the anointed Kohen will sin, bringing guilt upon the people. So the anointed Kohen is the Kohen Gadol. And the indication here is that uh, if he shall sin, that uh, there's a possibility that the Kohen uh, could sin, right? And if he does sin, since he represents the people, he brings guilt upon all the people. So Rabbi Monk writes here and says, As the Targum tells us, this refers to the Kohen Gadol. It is significant that the Torah begins the laws of the various forms of atonement with the case of the Kohen Gadol, who has sinned. By so doing, please listen to this, by so doing, the Torah is proclaiming that the man, M-A-N, the man who occupies the highest position, is not infallible. My friends, this is one of the dilemmas of those who would uh, argue for a human Messiah. And I understand uh, some of the uh, Torah arguments that the the Messiah is not going to be divine, he's going to be human. I understand those. I believe that they're inaccurate and incorrect. But I do understand um, why somebody would want a human Messiah and how it would make them feel better with respect to the concern about idolatry, which is really not a concern, but we don't have time to get into all that. Hashem has manifested in a human form numerous times, but that's that's beside the point. I just want to deal with the critical thinking aspect of it because it's one thing to say, I don't believe in a divine Messiah, and that makes us feel comfortable. It makes us feel like we're in alignment with um, you know a lot of common Jewish thought, and therefore we find comfort in that. But there's a problem. There's a problem once we settle on the fact that the Mashiach is going to be just a human, which aside from the fact that the Torah says that salvation is found in no human king, aside from that, it says here that the man who occupies the highest office, the Kohen Gadol, is not infallible. That is extremely problematic because the reality is that man, no matter who he is, no matter if he's Moshe, no matter if he's Aaron, remember that Aaron, the first Kohen Gadol, made the golden calf. Moshe sinned too. He struck the rock. King David sinned. I don't know. Can we get higher than them? Even Abraham sinned. 
No matter who the man is, he's not infallible. That, my friends, becomes extremely problematic when you're talking about the Mashiach who's supposed to take upon himself the sins of all mankind. That's just one of the problems. Now it says here, if the anointed Cohen, implying that there is a possibility of sin. We know that the Mashiach is going to be the king, correct? Correct. So, if we turn a little bit later on in Rabbi Monk's discussion, we find here um, that in verse 22, <clears throat> when it's talking about the ruler, which according to the Talmud is referring to the king, that's from Horayos 11a, the Torah here uses the word ruler, but it means king. It doesn't say if. It says when implying that a king will sin. A Kohen Gadol might sin, but a king, a human king, will absolutely sin. Just like when Yeshua said, when you fast, when you wrap tefillin, when you wear tzitzit, he didn't say if you fast, if you wear tefillin, if you wear tzitzit. Why? Because if would imply that somehow you might, you might not. But he knew that it's Torah commandments, so he said, when you do these things. Right? So we have here, if a Kohen Gadol should sin, he should bring an offering. But it says here, when you have a king, when he sins, now this is even more problematic than what I just said, because now we're talking about a human Mashiach, right? We're talking about a Mashiach who's going to be the king. And it says here that the king will sin. And when he does, he needs to bring an offering. That, my friends, is extremely problematic. When we're talking about the Mashiach, I just want to point it out. So, there are people out there who disagree with me that, that the Mashiach is divine, and I totally understand that, and I totally get it. I, I completely understand, you know, their arguments. And I understand the psychology behind those arguments and why we're drawn to them. Um... I will tell you, though, that even if you believe that Yeshua is a Mashiach, whether you believe he's divine or not, is not going to earn you brownie points in the Jewish community. So if that's a subconscious drive that you're trying to somehow make Yeshua more kosher, it's not going to work. In Judaism, you can believe in anybody, any, anywhere, anytime to be a Mashiach except Yeshua. What does that tell us? It means he's the Messiah. He's the only one you're not allowed to believe in. You can believe that Nachman's the Mashiach, you can believe that Snirson's the Mashiach, you can believe that Daffy Duck is the Mashiach. If you believe that Yeshua's a Mashiach, you're a heretic. Everybody else, you're A-OK -okay in USA. It's true. 100% true. Which tells us what? He's the Mashiach. The only one you're not allowed to believe in must be the one. Why? Because Joseph, all the brothers, right? All the brothers, even the father said, no way you're going to be the king. No way we're going to bow down to you. And who do they bow down to? Him. It says here something else. It talks about the sin offering. The sin offering uh, brought for a major sin, such as one committed by the entire community, is taken outside the camp to be burned. And it's just worth noting that Mashiach was taken outside the temple to be crucified. So I just want to point that out because remember that all the offerings are modeled after the Akedah, right? The Akedah was taken outside. So, <clears throat> going back to uh, Zav, 
a word that means command. I want to bring in a Baal here. We are now in our current parasha. We have translated from the former parasha into the now uh, parasha. And so Bahatorim, Bahatorim to verse 1. Verse 1 of uh, chapter 6 and verse 1 of the, the parasha Zav says, el moshele mor Zav et haron. So Bahatorim takes these words. We begin, as I said, the first, the first phrase is Vadaber el. And then it begins, Moshe Lemor Zav Et. Okay? So that phrase, Moshe Lemor Zav Et, means Moshe saying command. And the Baal points out that if we read this backwards, we take the first letter, or excuse me, the last letter of each phrase read backwards, spells the word Torah. So Moshe Lemor Zav Et, we read that backwards, we have Tav for Et, Vav for Zav, Reish for Lemor, and Hey for Moshe, which spells the word Torah. So he says, this teaches us that Moshe commanded them to occupy themselves with Torah. How do we fulfill the Torah commandments of sacrifice? Ultimately, we study Torah. Every time we sit down to study Torah, it's like offering up a, a, a sacrifice to God. Moreover, he he says with res, with respect to the phrase Zot Torah Haola Hi Haola, this is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering. He writes this indicates that whoever occupies himself with studying the laws of the burnt offering is considered as if he brought the burnt offering. This is the beautiful thing about. Um, studying the offerings is that we don't have to literally offer up an offering if we study the offering it's as if we brought it up in fact we're going to read this in just a second but there is a statement in here from that rabbi monk brings down that uh frankly i hadn't really considered before because many people say well now that the temple has ceased to exist there are no offerings so what do you do you know this is typically a question most often asked by christians to us implying that somehow our atonement is wrapped up in the physical offerings of bulls and goats, which it was not. But here's the reality. The Talmud brings down that the, something we already know, right? That the temple on earth was only a copy of the temple in Shemayim. And that in Shemayim, there is a Kohen Gadol, who is perpetually offering up sacrifices. So since the temple on earth is only a copy of the actual temple, which is in Shemayim, the temple still exists. It's just, a, it's just not here. And not only that, but the offerings are still being offered up. They've never stopped. Think about that. That's really, if you think about it, such a true statement. We're going to learn in a second what those offerings are. It's going to blow your mind. But this is, we want to stick with this first concept that the temple does still exist and the offerings are still going on. So therefore, when we study the offerings, this is why it's as if we offered the offering. Why? Because the Torah is divine, it's holy, it's God's word. So when we're studying it, we're connecting with the spiritual reality that's happening in Shemayim right now. Even though we're not allowed to physically do it here on the earth, because what we're doing anyway is just a copy of what's being done. So anyway, it says, moreover, moreover, let me speak English properly, moreover, 
The Torah and the offerings have much in common. Baha Torah says the offerings are referred to as Ishe, a fire offering, and the Torah is called Esh, fire. As it is said, Chalo Koch Devari Baesh. Behold, my word is like fire from Jeremiah 23:29. We also shared in an Aliyah, um, I'm not sure when, I've lost track of when it was, but we, uh, the, the Baal Torah, or not, excuse me, not Baal Torah, but Rabbi Amon brought down that uh, the first reference to the Torah as fire was in the uh, the covenant of the parts where it used the word lapid for the very first time. And it says that that lapid, that torch was the Torah. And of course, we know the lapid is the title of Mashiach. So Mashiach is the Torah, right? All right. So it says, and mimeno esh dat lamo. From his right hand, he presents to us a fiery law, Devarim 33.2, which alludes to the oral Torah. For the letters, dat lemo, law to them, can be arranged to spell tamud. <clears throat> Let me read that again. This refers to the oral law. Why? Because dat lamu, lamo, law to them, can be arranged to spell tamud. So we wonder if the tamud is divine, it's found in Torah. So it says the offerings are called lechem, food, as it is written, Eitz Karbani, Lachmi. My offerings, my food, Numbers 28.2. And similarly, the Torah is referred to as food, as the verse says, Leku Lachmu, Be Lachmi. Come, partake of my food, Proverbs 9.5. Just as it is impossible for the world to exist without food, so it is impossible for the world to exist without Torah. That's from the Baal Torah. Now, the Torah, as we just read, is referred to as food here. And so when Yeshua is talking about eating of him, of him, since he is the Torah, then uh, obviously we have to partake of him. How do we partake of the Torah? We study it. We read it. We live it. That's the way in which we eat it. Now, I want to share uh, an insight here because um, in Parashazav chapter 6, verse, what verse are we on here? This is just verse 2, it looks like. Um, it says, command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the elevation offering. It is the elevation offering that stays in the flame of the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar, she kept burning a flame on it. There was an insight brought down here where there was a rabbi, Rabbi Chaim uh, ben Attar, who uh, suggests that this until morning phrase refers to the time in which the coming of Mashiach will, will, will take place, which he seems to indicate is, this, in the, is in the second half of the sixth millennia, which seems to be in accord with Avodah Zarah 9a that uh, suggests the same thing. Um, but this, this the insight I want to share actually has to do with the fact that that uh, the sages in Sanhedrin 99b forbade us, or anyone, to predict the coming of the Mashiach. And Rabbi Yehuda HaHasid actually has a statement here of particular um, strength against prediction of the Mashiach, and he explains why that is. And I think it's um, important for us, because... I, uh, it happens a lot where people, uh, whether it typically it, it tends to be in the 
charismatic Christian world, um, the the messianic world, um, the um, Hebrew roots world, whatever. Everybody wants to predict the, the coming of the Mashiach, and there seems to be a great fascination with that. Uh, and it it really, and I I I perceive it frankly as to be a, a huge distraction. Because instead of uh, worrying about when the Mashiach is going to come, we should just be living and, and be prepared for when he comes, right? And beyond that, um, the Jewish idea also is that uh, uh, when the Mashiach comes is largely dependent upon us. So it's not necessarily a fixed date and time, because the more observant the world becomes, the quicker we expedite the coming of the Mashiach. So by being distracted and not keeping the Torah... Um, by instead focusing on when that date is going to, we're actually postponing the redemption. Likewise, the whole theology that teaches people not to be Torah observant, to be just whatever, anything but Torah observant, is also actually preventing the redemption. Because we learn in Yiddishkeit that when we actually become observant, like they say, the Jews would just keep two Shabbats back to back, the Mashiach would come. But the whole prediction of Messiah thing is actually far more devilish than just a distraction. And here is what Rabbi Yehuda HaHasid writes, and I agree with him 100%. He writes this in Sefer Hasidim, chapter 12. If you see someone prophesying about the Messiah, be aware that he has fallen into sorcery and relations with demons, or else he is one of those who try to invoke supernatural forces using the names of God. When he conjures up angels and spirits, they speak of the Messiah in order to induce him to reveal his speculations. Ultimately, he becomes confounded because he has brought out demons instead of instead and misfortune befalls him the demons come and teach him their calculations and mysteries so as to confuse him and those who believe in him for no one knows anything about the coming of the messiah um i just want to share that with you because i think uh i if I could give Rabbi Yehuda a high five, I absolutely would. That is 100% spot on point. So the next time you have somebody out there, and I know I'm, I'm speaking to the Levitical choir here, but there might be somebody who watches this broadcast and they like to fancy themselves chasing the latest uh, whoever about when the Mashiach has come. You should just know that that is... Um, uh, it's delusion at best and demonic at worst. So, <clears throat> uh, another insight here. Oh, this goes back to what I was going to show you. I was going to blow your mind. Okay, so there's a t there is a temple in heaven, right? The temple in heaven. And so, Rabbi Monk brings down, Rabbi Haim Benatar and other sages see an illusion Um. In the verse to the long nights of exile inflicted upon the Jewish people and the Olaf sacrifices, in this verse it says, and the fire of the altar should remain burning on the, on the altar. Okay, this is what it's in reference to. I should have said that earlier. But anyway, let me start over. Rabbi Haim ben Atar and other sages see an allusion in this verse to the long nights of exile inflicted upon the Jewish people and the Olaf sacrifices, the Holocaust that they have un 
unceasingly offered on the altar of covenant. Our sages in the Talmud note that since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the angel Michael offers victims on the altar in heaven. This is from Menachot, Menachot 110a in the Talmud, which we're going to read in just a second. Tosafot add that these victims are the souls of the righteous in our daily prayers. We allude to these sacrifices of the Jewish people when we say in the Shemano Esrei, Adonai accept with love the sacrifices of Israel. Okay. So the Jewish uh, idea in the Talmud is that the, the Kohen Gadol and Shemayim is Michael the archangel. Um, could be. I, I happen to, I would rather, rather think that the Kohen Gadol is Mashiach, but it's really not important, is it? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But anyway. So our position in Lapid Judaism is that the soul of Mashiach, Mashiach himself, was offered up for our atonement, right? That he's the ultimate Akeda, that his offering brings atonement to us, and to a certain degree brings satisfaction, so to speak, to Hashem. Not that we're trying to appease and anger God, that's not what I mean, but but it pleased God, as it says in Isaiah 53, which Isaiah 53, according to Judaism, is 100% about the Mashiach. Absolutely. Don't ever doubt that. But it pleased God to crush him. Why? Why did it please God to crush him? Because through his atonement, many are brought the righteousness. So it says in Menachot 110a, let's just read it from the Talmud, the actual Talmud, not anything else other than. It says, where is it? Oh, I just lost it. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, where to go? Ah. So it says here, Rav Gidel said in the name of Rav, this refers to the altar that is built in heaven, and Michael, the great angel, stands and offers a sacrifice upon it. His offerings continue forever, even when there is no temple or altar on the earth. But Rabbi Yochanan said, this refers to the Torah scholars who engage in the study of the laws of the temple service, for scripture regards them as if the temple were built in their days. So with respect to the offerings that Michael the archangel is offering every day, of course this is referring to the morning and evening atonement offerings, the morning and evening lambs, the morning and evening akedot. What offerings is he offering every day? Listen to this. Because people would say, I just got through saying that the Mashiach was offered for our atonement and there would be anti-missionaries, for instance, who would say, that's ridiculous. God does not accept human sacrifice. That is nothing but idolatry. It's nothing but complete um, uh, paganism. You got that from the pagans. That is not Jewish, blah, 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 blah. Totally not true. Here's the quote. So it says, in the comments to this passage about Michael offering the offerings, it says, Thus Solomon was telling uh, the king of Tyre as follows, There will never cease to be an altar, either below, below or above. Okay? So the Gemara and Hagiga 12b comments, And what sacrifice does the great angel Michael offer? Does it enter your mind that there are bulls or sheeps in Shemayim? No. Rather, what does he offer? If there's no bulls or sheep up there, then what is he doing? What is he offering? It says he offers the souls of the righteous. 
Anaf Yosef explains that he presents these souls before God as pleasing and satisfying aroma. He cites the Arizal that there is no higher pleasure in the world to come than when Michael takes a righteous soul and offers it before God. He cites Minrash HaNeilam, that this act of offering is not like the sacrifices, you know, but rather like someone who presents a gift to the king. So, we have here, right in the Talmud, the concept that the daily atonement offerings that Michael is offering in Shemayim are the souls of the righteous. So, is that actually happening or not? Well... Does it really matter? What it does is sets a precedent uh, for us that the offering of the righteous soul of Mashiach is completely in line with Jewish ideals. Meaning that if Michael is in heaven, and it's codified in the Talmud, right? I didn't make it up. It's right there in two different places. If he's in heaven offering up the souls of the righteous on behalf of the Jewish people, and that is pleasing to God, then that is a precedent, my friends, that when we offer up, so to speak, the soul of the Mashiach, and it becomes pleasing to God to crush him, why? So that many might be brought to righteous. That is in alignment with Judaism. So what's the problem? All right, one last thing as we conclude. By the way, I should say, Something else that Rabbi Monk brings down here is he says this statement, just want to throw it out there. The hatas and the asham offerings, that is the sin offerings and the offerings of guilt, are considered of a higher degree than the peace offerings. Why? Because these offerings, the offerings of sin and the offerings of guilt, are brought by repentant sinners. Ba'alei teshuvah. So it means that the repentant sinner occupies a higher position than the Zadikim in the presence of God. And so therefore their offerings are considered higher and holier. So to go along with my drosh from yesterday, if someone looks down upon you because you didn't grow up in a Jewish home, um, because you know you didn't grow up, you know, you whatever. You should know that you occupy a higher position than the uh, the great rabbi who has has three or four or ten generations of rabbis and has never eaten a ham sandwich, has been perfectly righteous all of his life. You, as the Balchuva, as the one who's returning to God, and there's another source that says that all Gentiles are Balchuva because originally they were offered the Torah and they denied it and they came back to it. And so as a Balchuva, you occupy a higher position than that individual. So there you go. One last thing. Removing the ashes in the morning. I love what it says here. You shall pick up the ashes. This refers to cleaning the altar, a task performed each morning at the beginning of the divine service in the temple. Our sages conclude that it's up to every Jew to begin his daily divine service by seeing to his hygienic needs. This is why the first blessing of the morning, the morning prayers, are devoted to hand washing. That is, spiritually removing the ashes of yesterday and uh, 
creating service to God anew every day. We'll touch back on that tomorrow because there's more to add. But I just wanted to say that when we get up in the morning and we say our morning blessings, that is akin to us removing the ashes from the altar, the ashes of yesterday, in order to begin our service to God afresh. May that be the case each and every day. End of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, and magnificent day. Be blessed, be joyful, be happy, and be resolved to follow the King who rules over kings, Yeshua HaMashiach, blessed be he. Shalom, shalom. We'll see you tomorrow with God's help.